today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A couple of areas in which I want to focus. We mentioned just before the break about uh, this being a pivotal week in the war in Ukraine. I want to talk about that in greater detail in a second uh, with our next guest. But uh, there's also a report that comes out uh, that I was reading last night called Beijing's Influence in Canadian Democratic and Electoral Process. How timely is that? And uh, that'll be the beginning of our conversation with uh, Elliot Tepper. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, great to have you back on the show. Uh, this is right into your wheelhouse, talking about uh, <laughs> the influence of Chinese, uh, in, in, not just in Canadian politics. I know they kind of focus on this, but what's been going on. This is done by a group called Alliance Canada HK. Uh, and it's about 78 pages long. It, it goes into great detail about this stuff. And uh, it, it's required reading, I would think, for an awful lot of people in Ottawa. I know this is what you've been talking about for the last couple of years. Uh, so anybody that's, that's trying to follow what's happening in Ottawa with the, the quote-unquote investigation about uh, foreign interference uh, understands that this is this is not a new problem, is it? No. That's, uh, that report you referred to is brand new. It just came out and it encompasses really up-to-date information about where we stand. I don't happen to know about that individual group, but what they uh, are reporting on really tracks with everything else we've known that China has been involved in a massive, massive interference campaign. And we should remind ourselves off the top, as always, to be fair to everybody, that there's a big, big difference between soft power, which all countries do, you know, they're, your job as a diplomat is to be sure there's a favorable opinion, but when that crosses the line to be covert, corrupt, and coercive, then it's a different operation. Then it's an influence operation, and that's very clear now. That's what China has been involved in. Uh, the that report points out that uh, I, I think we talked about this uh, together, Bill. That um, you know the last budget very quietly in Canada already set up a counterintelligence unit and mm -hmm. also more money for the Mounties. But the bigger picture here is that we have discovered the need in Canada to really ramp up, to add on to our defensive posture when it comes to of all kinds of foreign interference. These are generalized rules. We are living in a more hostile, invasive world. It's China, it's Russia, Iran, North Korea, and who knows who else might come down the pike. We will be gearing up that's going to be the bottom line out of all the uh, various things we're hearing right now in front of us in politics now you've and i've known each other for years and you've, you've talked extensively about this uh one of your colleagues up in the auto area professor stephanie carvin's been on the show many times too and i know she's done a great bit of work as a matter of fact i think she's uh, one of the contributors to this report uh, so you guys have, have, have understood this and, and have studied this extensively. Are our security forces uh, as well-versed in this? I mean, have they been paying attention? <laughs> we need to get better organized and to have better armor. We need a, a better regulatory system. We need, you know, the equivalent now of what was once called Bill C-51 when we had to step up our game in a different way about terrorism. We need to step up our game, and I think that's what's underway Uh my colleague Stephanie Carvin is just a great expert on all of this. Mm -hmm. Yes, we um, we are in a we are in a world that is taking advantage of who we are, which is a free and open and democratic society. We cannot armor ourselves in a way that infringes on that. That is a victory for those who have malign intent against us. So it's a tricky balance. I'm very confident, however, we are going to be doing a lot more. The big question, Bill, is 
is it in time and is it enough? Well, yeah, and, and as I say, this report, uh, I think, gives you a pretty good indication of where we are now. It's not just a history of it. It's it's, it's what's going on now, and uh, certainly it's required reading, and we'll see. Because we, we've talked to some CSIS officials, I mean, ex-CSIS officials and ex-security uh, people, ICMP, uh, and they've bemoaned the fact that they feel that the, it, the higher up of the echelons there, uh, they're, they're not focusing on, on China as much as they probably should. They're still looking at, 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 at Iran and, and Russia, as they should be, uh, but there's a, a major player here that uh, that uh, you know has cannot be ignored, as we found out over the last couple of months. Anyway, I'm sure more to come on that uh, as we go along. Let me change the focus, if I could, for just a second uh, to what's going on in Ukraine, Elliot. Uh, Ukrainian air defenses have managed to shoot down more than 30 Russian cruise missiles and drones as Moscow continues its attack on Ukraine. Karen Chamis has a quick report for us. The air offensive was Moscow's sixth attack in six days on Kiev. Officials say the capital was simultaneously targeted from different directions by Iranian-made drones and cruise missiles. Several people were injured and private houses, outbuildings and cars sustained damage from falling debris. The recent spate of attacks on the capital has put a strain on residents as they wait for an upcoming counteroffensive promised by Kiev authorities. I'm Karen Chamas. Ellie, read on, on what you've heard, uh, drone attacks, uh, counterattacks, uh, and, and as, as we talked about a couple of days ago, attacks within the Russian boundaries right now, too. And there's a, a lot of finger pointing going on there. It seems as if things are ramping up. Yes, but we should have no false equivalencies here. Those few attacks, which have really dominated the headlines. Oh, there's eight drones. There's 11 drones. There's the, the massive nature of this illegal imperial activity by Russia against a defenseless, as they thought, defenseless neighboring state, at least one that had not attacked them. That is the big story. The, the, the message that the capital city is being attacked relentlessly by the most sophisticated weapons that they have in their arsenal, these Iranian-made drones. Going back to our earlier conversation, we have to remember Iran mm-hmm. is willing to kill abroad uh, in all kinds of ways. But the, the fundamental fact here is that Ukraine has come under an enormous, enormous attack by a nuclear-armed superpower. They're attacking the capital now, but also across the country. Yes, we do anticipate a counteroffensive because the world is expecting one. And what worries me, I should say concerns me a great deal, is that too much is being built around this counteroffensive because, if I could quote some others and pull it together, a counteroffensive should not be considered a single act. It should be considered a process. The idea that there's going to be a lightning strike that's going to transform the nature of this war definitively within four or five days, that's putting way too much, I, it could happen, it's not impossible, but it puts way too much pressure on the success of that attack and uh, therefore a diminution perhaps of support afterwards uh, if it does not have a lightning effect that is a mischaracterization of the nature of this conflict. Is uh, there a change in strategy from for the Russians here? I, I mean, I, I know there have always been missiles. We've seen that right from the beginning of the invasion, of course. But uh, no, to your point, I mean, the report we saw this morning, I mean, Ukraine suggesting that just last night alone, they shot down 36 uh, Russian missiles uh, that were headed for Kiev, uh, which indicates that they, the ground war is not going well for the Russians at this stage. Have they simply decided to start pounding the cities as they did about a year ago? Yes, they've, they are terrorizing the capital. They're trying to destroy the capital. They hope to get lucky, I suppose, uh, 
and actually uh, kill the leaders of the, remember, this is the capital city, and this mm. is a, a, a decapitation effort. The first one failed when they invaded and tried to capture uh, Kiev in a lightning strike. That, as we know, totally failed. This is an alternative form. No, this is a terror attack. It's also a way to test all the uh, systems, maybe to degrade the systems, knowing that a counterattack is coming, knowing that Ukraine is going to do something. They're trying to drain the resources that Ukraine has uh, to to uh, put into the field and also def to defend their capital going forward. It's part of the great game going on here between an invading imperialist power and a state that's organizing to defend itself with the increasing cooperation of all of the states. I was going to say the West, but it's, uh, remember we talked a bit about G7, the democracies versus autocracies. When, when the Japan's leader says Ukraine today could be us tomorrow, this is a global conflict that uh, Mr. Putin cannot be allowed to win. The, the dawning of that realization took a little while It's settling in the tours that uh, Mr. Zelensky is taking, there's two big meetings right now going on, the foreign ministers meeting in Oslo, and this political community, the community of Europe, which is a new organization, he's gone to that. All of this is to say one thing, we are unified and you are not going to outlast us. War fatigue is not going to win this for you, Mr. Putin. Uh, we are here in a unified way, just as the G7 said a little while ago, so don't count on us wearing out before uh, before you have accomplished your aims. You are not going to be allowed to conquer Ukraine. Uh, and, and Zelensky, of course, has been quite vocal about that in the appearances he's made. But let me ask you about what's going on on the other side of the border. Uh, last Sunday, I had occasion of watching the political shows, of course, uh, and they were talking with three young Russians who were actually working. It's the equivalent of Radio Free Europe. And they're broadcasting in yes. these areas and, and trying to give truth as opposed to some of the, the stuff that the Russians, of course, are panning out there. Uh, and, and one of the young guys said, he, first of all, he says it's very depressing how many people on the street, to use this phrase, still believe that Putin's right. And, you know, that we have to eradicate the Nazis out of there. But he said the oligarchs aren't odd there. They're, they're more educated and they know what's going on. And uh, one of them raised the question. They said, you know, at the beginning, it looked like Putin was going to play the long game. And he suggested, I don't know if he's got time to play the long game anymore because of, of what's happening and, and the, the frustration that some of the people around Moscow are feeling now. Yes, there's been speculation, informed speculation, that uh, there's great mystery going on, Bill, because as you know, the Wagner Group head, uh, Prigozhin, has been openly feuding with the top echelons of the military establishment, the, the Minister of Defense and the general in charge the intra-elite competition and split and vituperation at the very top has been puzzling because Mr. Putin brooks no dissent. And the answer has been, well, he likes to have factions fighting, then he can come in and be the, you know, the savior. But the possibility is growing now that he just can't stop these things, these military bloggers who are slogging him so much. He has almost total control, going back to your earlier comment, about what Russians hear. Uh, he has control of the airwaves. He has control of the um, media channels, uh, almost uh, all of the media channels. So, yes, a lot of Russians really do believe what he says, but increasingly that's difficult to sustain. And no one really knows any longer what he is or is not able uh, to to command and to do. And, of course, the big question is, is if he's cornered, will he use his nukes? 
Well, yeah, and we don't have a definitive answer on that. And, of course, that's led to the speculation, which I guess has been going on for years now. Uh, but w what after Putin? What happens then? And, uh, you know, there's always some hope if there's going to be a regime change in Russia that, that maybe somebody a little more moderate, and I use that term advisedly, uh, might be, you know, a, a Yeltsin or a Gorbachev who, who might seem a little more moderate than the, some of the previous. But now we're starting to hear <laughs> that if Putin is ousted uh, or, you know, is, is shown the door, uh, it may be somebody much more militant and, and much more aggressive that takes place, especially, as you say, with the influence that the, the Wagner group seems to be having these days. Yes, and it might even be, be uh, Prigozhin himself. He's basically purchased a, a small political party, so he's yeah. got a, a political base growing. And yes, an the army idea to, that there's to going back to be it up. a change and it's going to be for the better, uh, that <laughs> there's no reason to assume that at the moment. We just have to hope that the Ukrainians, with unified support and a lot of military equipment, can actually turn the tide in this war. Is the equipment that, that's being committed, is, is it getting there in, in a timely fashion? I mean, uh, you know, Canada's made a commitment, the United States did, there, there, a great reception he got at G7 in Japan a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, but it takes a while for, for the, you know, the handshake to, to actually, you know, the stuff getting, you know, shipped over there. Yes, what we hear is, well, a lot of the stuff's already in place and they're trained in how to use it. But we do know that, for example, the F, uh, F-16s, which could make a big difference in the air war, and a lot of the battle tanks and a lot of the other heavy equipment we've heard about, that won't be there at least until fall. So the idea that, okay, the West has really stuffed this place with exactly what's needed, that the Ukrainians know how to use it, that they have the battlefield awareness to coordinate, and this is the key element to it all, that they have the capacity to fight a, uh, a war that has battlefield um, uh, coordination at all levels. All of that's a big open question. Uh, the, the pressure is on to use what they currently have so, to such an effect that the Russians will uh, lose something and that the West will maintain its support. But that's a lot of pressure on Ukraine for what is still a partial delivery of the kind of equipment. And you and I have talked about this. They have pledged repeatedly they cannot ever use that equipment anywhere other than on Ukrainian territory. They cannot use it to attack the rear uh, the rear echelons within Russia. They can't. They cannot reciprocate in, in kind against Moscow the way that Moscow is trying to pulverize Kiev. Although there is some speculation, I saw a report on CNN the other day that said that, uh, that uh, well, the Biden administration uh, is maybe feeling a little more emboldened that they can push back a little more against Putin than they might have a year or so ago. Uh, I don't know what that exactly means or what it leads to, but when you see a story like that, you, you know from your experience, uh, that's usually a trial balloon put up by the administration to see what kind of reaction they're going to get. So uh, there may be more to come on this, I would think. <laughs> you can count on that one, Bill. There's a lot yeah. more to come on this story. I've, I've been calling our current phase the, the head fake phase, where there's going to be deflection, disinformation. Um, uh, look over here, don't look over there. We're into a, into a stage of the war where there's a lot of, well, we've, we've got plans. We're not going to tell you what they are. And we're going to try to dis to mislead the enemy. But, of course, both sides are doing that. The key factor here is, mm -hmm. among others, key factors. Russia has really dug in on a defensive line. And it's very hard. Uh, this is trench warfare from World War I with hypersonic yeah. missiles added in to the package, the most modern weapons we have. But the Russians Incredible. are very solidly dug in. It's going to be very hard to break through the defenses to achieve the kind of victory that everybody says, oh, well, you know, Ukraine will now turn the tide of the war tomorrow. 
no, I think we're into this for a much longer haul, and we should not let war fatigue and disappointment over day-to-day activities deflect from the core fact that, indeed, Ukraine is fighting our war for us. Mr. Putin cannot be allowed to change to the geopolitics of, of Europe and therefore the world by this illegal imperialist adventure of his. Exactly. Elliot, as always, uh, great to get this perspective from you. We'll uh, follow events and talk down the road for this again. But thanks for this today. Always a pleasure. Elliot Tepper, uh, Emeritus Professor from uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.